everyone, and welcome to the 72nd episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries, where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I have found myself torn this week. Uh, in reading through the various articles that I, I've saved to mine for stories for this show, I, I came across a couple of rants by Bradley Brownell and Kristen Lee of Jalopnik, arguing respectively for touching and not touching cars, uh, specifically other people's cars. Uh, this is on the heels of the Concours d'Elegance in Pebble Beach and Mo- Monterey Car Week, where many rich people had their very expensive cars on display, and many poor people came up and touched them against the wishes of the rich owners. Kristen's point is basically that you shouldn't ever touch somebody else's cars or, or or their stuff without their permission because it's their stuff and you wouldn't want people doing that to your stuff. Plus, what is there to be gained by touching a fancy car when you could scratch the paint or, or leave dreaded fingerprints on the glass? Uh, Bradley's take was that you absolutely should touch the cars because they are cars, not the Fabergé eggs, and they're built to handle significantly harsher conditions than those provided by people's grubby little fingertips. He argues that owners shouldn't treat their cars as fragile little things that can't cope with some enthusiastic attention, and that they should grant people uh, the right to touch, feel, sit in, fart in, whatever, their fancy cars. And I, I guess I sort of walk a middle road here. As, as harsh as I am on these jerks who buy up all the awesome cars and sit on them in climate-controlled garages to avoid racking up miles of depreciating their value, I also berated a maintenance guy in my parking garage at work for using a pressure washer to clean the freaking ground right next to my car, undoubtedly damaging the clear coat, though leaving no obvious damage to my paint. It's, it's hypocritical because I simultaneously want to touch all the cars, but want no one ever to touch my car. And mine's a lowly Volkswagen. Imagine if I had like something even as nice as a Jaguar. I'd, I'd just be insufferable. So basically, I guess I'm, I'm, not, I'm on board with respectful touching. If we as an automotive community could get to a point where every admirer asked politely to touch or sit in vehicles and every owner was nice enough to let them, and then those admirers were polite enough to act carefully, not to scratch any paint or any leather or not to mess everything up, I think that'd be the ideal scenario. But the truth is that people, by and large, are assholes, and they will carelessly ding your doors because their fat ass can't park in the middle of the spot and then they can't be bothered to be wary of your property when opening their doors. People will jump on the hood of a Lamborghini parked in front of a hotel to pose for a picture without thinking about how the buttons on their jeans will scratch the paint. People will set their purses down on your hood to get the keys out for their car because they forgot to get them out before walking to the parking lot. People suck, and and I'm not inclined to give them carte blanche with even my lowly VW until they demonstrate that they can and will be careful with my investment. I put a lot of time and money into my car, and, and as have the owners at Pebble Beach, and they've earned the right to be picky about who comes up and touches their car and how they do it. And maybe if we just all demonstrated a little more respect for that investment, we'd get closer to that ideal where we can trust other people to be able to touch the damn cars. But for now, just keep your mitts off. I just waxed it. Here's your top story. (laughs) 
I've been talking a lot about the stock market in this show recently, and it's not because I'm some obnoxious MBA who loves illustrating the fact that I know what financial terms mean. In fact, I don't even own any stock outside of my 401k. But when car companies are publicly owned, the products they make, the vehicles we get, are often a consequence of profit-seeking for the sake of shareholder satisfaction. Now, I'm going to try to not get too far into the weeds this week, but Moody's, a service for investors, downgraded Ford from BAA2 to BAA3, which actually means like it sounds, bad. Um, it's a step above junk bond status, which may be a term you've heard uh, about that basically just means that if you invest in this stock, you're investing in junk and you should not expect to see a return. So why, you're saying, is this happening now, mere months after Ford made the decision to kill off all of its cars and focus on more profitable, profitable vehicle segments in a transparent attempt at appeasing their shareholders? Well, according to Moody's, because of a, quote, erosion in the company's global business position and the challenges it will face implementing its fitness redesign program, end quote. Which is a nicer, fancier way of saying that Moody's doesn't believe Ford knows what they're doing to right the ship. And there's been a lot of news this week that might lead you to believe Moody's is exactly right. If you'll recall, when Ford announced that the U.S. would no longer receive any cars, they did qualify that by promising us a new Focus Active, which would be a jacked-up hatchback similar to the Subaru XV Crosstrek. Well, what Ford didn't count on when they made that announcement was that Donald Trump was going to come in and slap a 25% tariff on cars made in China, which the Focus Active is. So guess what, America? No Focus Active for you leaving the Echo Sport as the most entry-level vehicle for U.S. consumers. And to that point, I saw uh, the first Echo Sport I've ever seen on the road this week. It is hideous. <laughs> the company says that it doesn't think it's going to be a huge deal because they were only likely to sell about 50,000 of them a year, which is still a lot. Considering that, though, through July, Ford has already sold more than 114,000 Focuses and Fiestas this year, I think that their target was a little low, and that Ford may be seriously shooting themselves in the foot by giving up that many sales to GM, Honda, Toyota, Kia, Hyundai, and basically every other car maker that has a vehicle in the compact and subcompact segment. Then the company came out and said that they've reversed course on the Mondeo, which is the same car as the Fusion here in the U.S., saying that they are not going to kill it, but rather revamp it later this year because it's, quote, a core product of their lineup. Uh, it wasn't so core that just a few months ago, you were ready to totally scrap it and move on to baby Broncos and Ranger Raptors. And if it's important enough to get new powertrains, interior and exterior upgrades and enhancements to the hybrid range in Europe, why the hell would it not be worth trying that here? especially if they're using the same basic car with the same basic safety features that have already been tested for this market. As of this show, Ford has sold 97,800 Fusions in the U.S. this year alone, and I refuse to accept that there isn't a way for the company to make more money with a mid-sized sedan that sells that many copies. And then there's the Mustang. Poor, sweet, simple Mustang. You're the best ever version of yourself right now, and if the rumors are true, this is how I want to remember you. That's because the rumors say that in order to cull the number of platforms Ford has to just five, 
the Dax Mustang might share the same chassis as the Ford Explorer and Lincoln Aviator mid-sized crossovers. You know what other sports cars share their platforms with crossovers? None, because that's crazy talk. Ford, while not going far enough to confirm the rumors, did say that they would not, quote, bastardize the Mustang, and that the next generation would be just as Mustangy as all previous generations. But let's be clear. When you compromise on a vehicle's platform for cost-cutting, you change the inherent character of the vehicle. No matter how much additional bracing you add on, no matter what suspension bits you tack on, you're still driving an Explorer that has been modified to become a Mustang. And add to that fact that the next Shelby GT500 is allegedly not going to be available in a manual transmission, and you can probably hear, if you, ju if you just listen, listen closely enough, Mustang purists crying tears of pure 10W30. Finally, Ford announced with much fanfare this week the creation of the Enterprise Product Line Management Group, a special committee that has been tasked with studying what consumers want and then turning that information into creating more profitable, competitive vehicles. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't that just what the entire freaking company should be doing? What is the purpose of a company if not to be making products that people want and then making money from that. Like, what have you been doing until this group was created? Was there an actual plan behind killing all of the passenger cars? And will this group have the ability to resurrect those vehicles if their market research indicates there's a market for them? This team is apparently split into 10 divisions. Family utilities, urban utilities, rugged utilities... Performance vehicles, luxury vehicles, compact trucks, F-series, commercial vehicles, electric vehicles, and emerging market vehicles. You'll notice that none of those categories is passenger vehicles, which leads me to believe that no matter what these guys decide, we're not getting the Focus, Fiesta, or Fusion back. But pressure on these groups is going to be crazy. They're not only supposed to be in charge of creating new vehicles and bringing them to the market and achieving a specific level of profitability, but they're meant to ensure consumers are engaged with Ford offerings, whatever that means. I like a good challenge in my work, but I don't like no-win scenarios. And this sort of sounds like a game of Automotive Survivor, where the last remaining head of one of these divisions gets to be the next CEO and face scrutiny on investor calls for why their profit margins still suck. And they really, really suck right now. Ford's global profit margin is just 3%. And in North America, it's down to 7.4%, which again, points to why Moody's has a pretty negative outlook on Ford's future. Yet, Ford has come out this week and said it plans to spend $740 million on revamping Michigan Central Station, that old train station in Corktown in Detroit that it recently bought. One really has to wonder where the company's priorities are right now. The overwhelming sense I get from this collection of stories is that Ford lacks a strategic direction and doesn't really have any idea what customers want. They hear analysts say, well, SUVs are the big hot thing right now, and decide, okay, we're all in on SUVs, without ever giving much thought into what that means for their overall product line or what the customer journey might be. I, say that, I said this after they first announced that they were killing off all their cars, but completely lacking an entry-level car, Ford is essentially telling first-time buyers or customers without much money to spend that they don't care about them. 
And for a non-luxury car company, that's a mistake. Because it's not like kids grow up with big posters of a Ford Edge on their wall as something to aspire to. Instead, they'll get a Hyundai and stick with Hyundai because it's what they know and what they're comfortable with. For so long, Ford looked like they had it figured out by avoiding bankruptcy during the big recession bailout and by hitting home runs with the Mustang, Focus, and, and the one Ford Vision. But the more news that comes out, the less it seems like they're going to be able to keep up with GM, who have repeatedly affirmed their commitment to sedans, or with any number of foreign manufacturers. Maybe this enterprise product line management group will figure it out and become what the company should have been all along listeners to the consumers they serve rather than the shareholders. You guys get one guess for what company leads the headlines this week. Yep, it's Tesla, which had a couple of wins for once. Uh, first, the company pushed out an over-the-air updates to its vehicles uh, that enables a pin-to-drive feature that adds a bit of security. Nowadays, it's becoming more common for thieves to just be able to hack keyless entry systems and take off with expensive vehicles. Enabling this feature is a quick way to secure your fancy Model S or 3 against some hacker walking off with it, which is pretty cool. Tesla Canada also won a victory in court, allowing buyers to receive a $14,000 rebate for an EV purchase that was given to all EV buyers except Teslas. The company argued that the discrimination was arbitrary, and the courts agreed, despite the fact that people who can afford to buy Teslas almost certainly don't need five-digit incentives in order to buy them. Uh, nevertheless, Teslas just got cheaper in Canada, at least until later this month when the electric and hybrid or hydrogen vehicle incentive program gets cancelled. So you better act quick, Canucks. That, however, is where the wins stop and the losses start piling up for Tesla. First, the company's head of human resources has left on an indefinite leave of absence. Uh, this after the communications head left last week. One can only assume uh, it's because she doesn't want to have to be the one to tell Elon he's fired because he's doubled down on his accusations that one of the heroes of the Thai cave rescue is a pedophile, uh, which, of course, he has. Uh, in tweets this week, where else, he challenged users to find evidence that the man was not a pedophile, which is not the way facts or accusations work. He also indicated that it was strange he hadn't been sued yet, which... If that isn't just asking to be sued, I'm not sure what it is. Then came the news of the competition. Dyson, famous for vacuums and bladeless fans, is upping their investment in electric cars to 200 million pounds and building a 10-mile race, race test track on a former World War II airfield. Uh, while it may sound a bit strange for a vacuum company to be making a car, remember that those vacuums use high-powered electric motors and batteries, so they have some serious engineering chops there. Plus, with the UK automotive manufacturing shrinking to the point of near non-existent, there is probably a lot of out-of-work people with a wealth of uh, automotive knowledge ready and able to build quite a competent little car. Then there's Apple, which totally wasn't making an electric car, then maybe was, then was only focusing on autonomous tech, but maybe wasn't very far along with it. Well, they're far enough along that a Lexus fitted with Apple autonomous technology was rear-ended while driving on public roads this week, 
We know next to nothing about the car or its technology, except that it belongs to Apple and that if they're testing on roads, it must be pretty far along. Hyundai this week announced that their forthcoming Kona EV is rated at 258 miles of electric range, which is super impressive and bound to eat some of Tesla's and Chevy's lunch, considering it's a crossover and those are the only things analysts say people want these days, even if the numbers for Ford vehicles indicate differently. We're still waiting on a price for the Kona EV, which, as a vehicle, is still waiting on styling for the front end, and, uh, um, wait, I, I'm being I'm being told from the booth that, uh, that is the actual front end of the finished car. Oh my. Uh, well, at least the Kia Soul, which, uh, will be based on this, might have a shot at looking remotely attractive. Finally, in competition for Tesla, Volkswagen will be bringing their We Share Electric Vehicle Car Sharing Program to the U.S. by 2020. Uh, despite the AAA study that owning a car was cheaper than using ride-sharing services, there's still going to be a market for it because there will always be a segment of the population who get really damn smug when they get to say, oh, I don't own a car, and then ask you for a ride to the store when they're out of organic granola because it's raining outside. Like it or not, these services may be a threat to car ownership, at least for some urban populations, which could reduce the size of the EV pie Tesla is currently occupying a significant portion of. Add to that the, f uh, the fact that the ID Cross and Buzz electric vehicles will be launched for sale in 2020 and as well, and Volkswagen is making a pretty strong play for the EV marketplace. International trade bully Donald Trump was back at it again this week, responding to an offer from Europe to drop all automotive tariffs if the U.S. agreed to do the same thing, saying that wasn't good enough. Uh, the offer from the EU wasn't entirely selfless, though, since German car makers like BMW, who makes the X3 in South Carolina, stand to gain a lot by the elimination of European tariffs. So maybe you'd think Trump was thinking of that. Well, no. He continued with the fact that their offer wasn't good enough because, quote, their consumer habits are to buy their cars, not buy our cars, end quote. I'm not sure what he means by that. For the deal to be good enough, will the European Union have to mandate that Europeans buy American cars? How how would that even work? Regardless, the, the European response was predictably frosty, insisting that the U.S. is escalating trade tensions and threatening then to raise tariffs if they are hit with more themselves. Hooray for making things more expensive. Uh, in Florida this week, an Uber driver named Robert Westlake fatally shot another uh, guy named Jason Beck in what he's claiming is self-defense. Uh, apparently, Beck thought that his girlfriend was catching a ride with Westlake when, in fact, she was just helping another woman into Westlake's Hyundai Elantra, which he was driving for Uber. Beck pursued the Elantra in his Ford F-250, repeatedly trying to run the car off the road before accelerating ahead of the car and stopping, bringing the pursuit to a halt. Beck then got out of the car and aggressively approached the Hyundai, saying, You know I got a pistol? At which point, Westlake shot once, fatally wounding Black. Um, the Uber driver then called 911 and even attempted to revive Beck at the scene until emergency crews arrived. Sheriff Grady Judd, during a news conference, called it a classic stand-your-ground case, indicating that Westlake probably won't see any charges from the incident. Uh, Uber explicitly prohibits drivers from carrying guns, but 
much like the rest of their business, they don't seem to enforce their rules too strictly, and it sounds like it's good for Westlake that they don't. Yet more evidence that we'll never be able to touch the cars. Um, meanwhile, in Texas, a crazy asshole named Nicholas D'Agostino has been charged with av aggravated assault with a deadly weapon not once but twice because he keeps going around shooting women drivers. Why would he do such a thing? Based on several public Facebook posts ranting about how incompetent female motorists are and that their sole purpose is to give birth to male children, I'm going to go out on a limb and say because he's a sexist nut job who shouldn't be allowed in public. Fortunately, he's as bad a shot as he is a person, and both drivers will survive. Uh, we can only hope that D'Agostino doesn't live long enough to find a woman who shares his views and will birth him only male children. Where, where does he think girls come from? <laughs> um, back in California, uh, the Pebble Beach Concours Elegance concluded this week with the naming of Best in Show, an honor that went to uh, 1937 Alfa Romeo 8C2900B Touring Berlinetta, which is a car that looks as long as it is spelled. Uh, this particular example is a deep blue swooping design that has recently been restored. It's one of only five ever built and was originally shown at the 1938 Berlin Motor Show. It finished just ahead of a 1929 Duesenberg J. Murphy Town Limousine and a 1948 Talbot Lago T26 Grand Sport Figoni Fastback Coupe. Uh, meaning you'll have to wait until next year to see if your 1988 Honda Civic DX hatchback merits consideration. On the topic of fancy cars, Rolls-Royce announced that they are developing 10mm small microbots equipped with cameras to crawl inside of engines and provide a live feed to mechanics, reducing the need to tear apart engines to diagnose issues. This technology, developed in partnership with the University of Nottingham and Harvard University, will first be rolled out to aircraft engines, which Rolls-Royce makes, uh, but could make it to automotive applications if successful. Developers are also hoping to go beyond cameras sometime and develop microbots that will actually perform the needed repairs to engine components, reducing the needs for humans because we just screw things up anyway, right? Um, they're hoping that a task might that might nominally take five hours to complete could just take five minutes if these swarm robots are successful. Mind you, these are not quite the nanobots that form Tony Stark's Iron Man suit in Infinity War, but man, does it... It feels like we're getting close sometimes. Um, then in other technology developments, Bosch has unveiled their perfectly keyless digital car key app that they say is safer because it's less likely to be stolen and or cloned. Each phone key is unique to the phone's owner and unlocks the car within two meters of the vehicle using NFC technology, so it'll still work when your phone runs out of battery. Uh, conveniently, it'll also activate predetermined driver settings like seat and mirror positions. No telling what it'll do when both you and your uh, spouse approach the car simultaneously. Maybe it'll rely on vehicles having distinct sensors on each side of the car. Um, it can be deactivated in the event your phone is stolen, which to me seems like uh, it, that would be much more likely than having your keys stolen. Um, either way, I'm on board for carrying less in my pockets, but there's something special about the feeling of a physical key turning a starter motor. 
Um, in much different technology news, the folks at Lego have been hard at work developing a Technic Bugatti Chiron replica. But this isn't the type of 2,000-piece thing that'll give you a headache and sore fingers as you snap together at home. This is a life-size replica of the real car that actually runs and drives using just Lego parts. Whereas the original car is powered by a 1,500-horsepower 16-cylinder engine, the Lego Chiron puts out around 5 horsepower from 2,304 Lego Power Function electric motors. Uh, incredibly, Lego says it, will, uh, it also puts out 68 pound-feet of torque, and the car will drive 12 miles an hour, which seems like it would be awfully scary. <laughs> Uh, the Lego car weighs 3,300 pounds and took more than 13,000 hours to complete, but it legitimately only uses Lego parts for everything from the working lights to the rolling tires. And you thought the instructions for your Millennium Falcon were tough. Um, the third season of The Grand Tour is returning to Amazon Prime this fall, but that's not the only format in which it'll be available. In a recent YouTube teaser, Amazon announced that they are making the show into a game playable on the PS4 and Xbox One. It'll apparently have a Mario Kart-like format with power-ups and fighting competition, but with realistic graphics and apparently hours of original voiceover recordings by Richard, James, and Jeremy, which they just must absolutely have loved doing. Um, it's also getting weekly episodic content to go along with the shows, allowing buyers of the games to race along the same locations visited by the shows, which is a pretty neat integration. Unfortunately, you won't be able to race as the Stig, which is still a Top Gear thing, uh, but that's probably good because it'd be like using a cheat code anyway. Um, speaking of Grand Tour stars, Richard Hammond was in the news this week because the villa where he and his family were staying in Saint-Tropez, France, was burgled in the middle of the night while they were sleeping in it. Um, money from 15 people staying in the villa was stolen, and based on the nature of the intrusion... Richard's wife, Mindy, suspected that they had been victims of some sort of knockout gas not to have heard the thieves. Fortunately, Richard and family are just fine, just slightly poorer, and the thieves were caught within 48 hours. Uh, still undoubtedly a very scary event, but Richard, of all people, has certainly had some scarier things happen to him over the last couple of years. Um, if ri only Richard and Mindy had been sleeping in the backseat of the new Rolls-Royce Phantom which can now come equipped with the Phantom Privacy Suite. Um, equipped with a glass partition between the driver and rear passengers that can go from transparent to completely opaque, as well as curtains for the rear and side windows, the new Phantom Privacy Suite will ensure no grubby poor people are able to see, let alone rob you. Uh, and with the suite's frequency-specific insulation, they won't even be able to hear you in it, and you won't be able to hear them, and isn't that just a relief? There is an intercom system with the driver who can call you in the middle of the movie that you're watching on your 12-inch HD monitor in the seat back in front of you, but you're free to ignore Jeeves until Mr. Darcy has re redeemed himself to Elizabeth again. Uh, no word on how much this package costs, but chances are, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Um, biofuels are a notoriously touchy subject because typically Americans kind of go about it all wrong, providing subsidies to farmers who produce crops that are used for biofuel instead of food. 
biofuels are less energy dense than petrol or diesel and therefore require more gallons per mile to achieve the same power output. But using plant byproducts as fuel is growing in popularity and France is hopping on board the biobus and using our drinking problem as the solution. Specifically, French companies have begun using grape mark, which is the byproduct of winemaking, to create ED95 bioethanol. And since we all drink so much, Union Cooperatives of Vinicole de Aquitaine is producing, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong and Michael correct me, um, is producing 100,000 tons of it per year in Bordeaux, enough to power a thousand vehicles. For now, it's being used by Citram Aquitaine. Uh, to run a Scania bus route between Bordeaux and Blaye. Uh, despite requiring more gallons to complete the journey, the bioethanol produces 50% fewer nitrogen oxides, 70% fewer particulates, as well as contributing to an 85% reduction in carbon emissions. While I usually take issue with biofuels, this is something I'll gladly drink to. Allstate this week released a report summarizing claim findings over the past year to name the safest city to drive in, and coming at uh, number one is Brownsville, Texas. Whereas the typical motorist is involved in a crash and makes a claim once every 10 years, in Brownsville that drops to once every 13.6 years. Not far behind were Kansas City, Kansas, Boise, Idaho, Huntsville, Alabama, and Madison, Wisconsin. On the other hand of the scale was Baltimore, Maryland, where you're likely to have a wreck every 3.8 years, and then Boston and Washington, D.C., where the average was 3.9 years in between claims. The study also looked at hard-breaking events and found that Philadelphia, Pennsylvania ranked worse, worst with a hard-breaking event 42 times per every 1,000 miles traveled, compared with just 19 events on average. Um, if your overall takeaway from this was that people on the East Coast just can't drive, you're wrong. People everywhere can't drive. It's just that they seem to be slightly less bad at it in the Midwest and Texas. Um, if you've ever seen a commercial for Axe Body Spray, you'll know that the company alleges its products will make you instantly attractive to literal scores of scantily clad hot women. If you've ever smelled uh, Axe Body Spray in person, you will know why we used to tape open the bottle nozzles and throw them into our doormates' rooms as acts of war because that shit is nasty and potent. Well, in Belton, Texas, the entire town was essentially axe-bombed this weekend as a truck transporting the noxious fumes caught fire and exploded on Friday. The pressurized cans were popping off like bottle rockets, and somehow nobody was injured. While the rest of the world is a little better off without uh, as much body axe body spray in it, the same cannot be said for the town of Belton, which will have to figure out how to house the thousands of hot women who were probably drawn in by the smell of sexy man. Now for some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless it's brand new. You might see me in my whip with my while there weren't too many completely brand new cars this week, we did get a few refreshes of existing models, the first of which is the Acura NSX. You'd think that taking something like 10 years between the concept and the production car, the final product release in 2016 would have been good for several years before needing revisiting, but Honda are perfectionists. To be fair, the current NSX is apparently an amazing car to drive, 
but Honda have gone back and stiffened up the car for 2019 and recalibrated its super-handling all-wheel drive system, giving it grippier tires and new steering and slip settings. What this boils down to is a car that is more likely to go sideways when you want it to, which can only be good news for people like Tanner Faust. Um, the price increases a meaningless $1,500 to a very meaningful $157,500 to start, but that now includes more options like GPS, because originally the $150,000 car didn't come with GPS. Just get a vent mount for your phone, right? Um, also getting a refresh is the Lexus RC, which suffered a great deal from what I call Lexus face. Um, this consists of a massive grill, Nike, Nike swoosh marks for LED running, running lights, and a separate headlight that make it look like the car is using eye black like a football player. Um, I've talked about Lexus's spindle grill as being different for the sake of being different and not for being better. But on the new RC, it's been toned down, and the car isn't going for that 100% front grille look like many Audi and other vehicles are doing. Mind you, it's still about 80% grille, but the LEDs have returned to the headlight housing, and the whole package just looks more svelte and cohesive. And there have been some updates to the interior with new colors and trim options as well. Um, in addition to the looks, the performance gets a few tweaks with improved aerodynamics, suspension, and powertrain tuning and some stickier tires. Based on this and the NSX and my GTI, was just was putting shitty tires on cars a thing for the past few years? In any case, this car will be uh, more formally unveiled in Paris, but since it's just an update, I can't see too many Parisians caring. Uh, for an actually completely new car this week, we have to go all the way to Russia, where the Moscow Auto Show was held last week to little fanfare. Um, being unveiled was the Lada 4x4 concept, uh, 4x4 Vision concept, which uh, is meant to be a replacement for the three-door Neva compact sport utility vehicle. This may not be something you've ever heard of because it's pretty limited to sale in just Russia and a few other former Soviet countries, but the damn thing has been around virtually unchanged for 40 years. <laughs> the company representatives say that customer needs have changed a bit since 1977, so they wanted to come out with a new SUV that met those evolving needs. Yeah, I think a lot of people were saying the same thing in 1981, too, and then in 1986, and then in 1992, and, and so on and so forth, yet Lada stuck with what they knew, which was making a tough little off-roader that was cheap to build, buy, and own, and benefited from Russia's apparent complete lack of safety regulation advancement in the past 40 years. Uh, and remember, this is still just a concept, the, the 4x4 Vision. Granted, it's a pretty good-looking one, so a production vehicle could still be years off. So I'm just saying, keep going for 50, Neva. You can do it. Um, while new cars were hard to come by, we did have a few new things on two wheels, uh, the first being the Vespa Electrica, if you're thinking that sounds familiar, it's because this car has been paraded around since 2016, with each subsequent time the company claiming it had made some further necessary tweaks before setting it loose on the public. Well, now it seems like it's finally ready to start production with its 62-mile range, which can be achieved in four hours of charging from a normal wall outlet. 
It's a neat little thing, but with a third of the range of their 50cc model and access to a charging port necessary, you have to sort of wonder how useful this thing will be for city dwellers, especially with the glut of electric scooters being dumped on streets these days. Plus, they're talking about a price in line with their top-of-the-range current scooters, which could mean around $8,000. And I don't know about you, but I can ride a lot of bird scooters for $8,000. Uh, finally this week is the Curtis Hera. Uh, Curtis Motorcycles is uh, like a, a part of or formerly Confederate Motorcycles, which made very low-volume, crazy-looking bikes for rich people. Uh, well, now they're back as Curtis Motorcycles and doing uh, the, the same thing. <laughs> uh, in partnership with Zero Motorcycles, though, they're moving their lineup to be all-electric and have thusly unveiled the Hera, which is apparently inspired by Glenn Curtis's V8 motorcycle, which propelled him to 136.3 miles per hour on a Florida beach way back in 1907. And that's when motorcycles uh, were in their infancy and used sort of uh, glorified bicycle tires. I cannot imagine going 140 miles an hour on bicycle tires. Uh, the Hera uses a bunch of non-electric bike technology like or terminology like V8 battery architecture and an E-twin motor. Uh, for the rich BS contained in the press release, it's pretty light on actual details like performance, range, or price. So I'm just going to guess. Um, based on the eight high-density lithium-ion batteries, I'm going to say it'll have uh, 200 horsepower and like 380 pound-feet of torque and go about 165 miles on a single charge. Uh, since it has instant torque, but is still heavy and still two wheels, you'll do 0 to 60 in about 3.5 seconds, which is plenty fast on a motorcycle. Um, but since Confederate Curtis whatever motorcycles are all always expensive, you'll expect to drop at least $68,000 on this when it actually re reaches production, which will be in four years. Uh, this has been Devlin's Guessing Game, and that's the end of New Cars and Bikes. Um... Finally this week, uh, something cool. Uh, Aretha Franklin was laid to rest on Friday after passing away earlier in August. In her song, Freeway of Love, Aretha sang about her love of the pink Cadillac. Uh, so it was only fitting that almost 130 pink Cadillacs showed up to line the streets for her funeral possession. Uh, many of these car owners had no connection to Aretha, but recognized that they shared a love and, and uh, for pink Cadillacs and that the visual impact could be made by such a strong showing, so they came in droves from all over the country. I've spoken before about the incredible ability of cars to bring us together, and it's just it's special to see a Motown legend honored in, in such a way. So with that, um, I'll thank you for listening. Thank you to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. I will leave you this week with a delicious morsel uncovered by the beautiful minds and filmographers at Petrolicious. This is a Ferrari Dino powered by the deturboed motor out of an F40. Here, friends, is your moment of zen. <laughs>